you. Would you go with me to a handful of places? Um, if you've got a ribbon, you're probably going to use both of them. Uh, start with 2 Peter, because that's probably the harder book to find this morning. 2 Peter chapter 2, that's not where we're starting, but I'll give you a head start on that. Uh, our text verse is going to be Romans 12. Um, which we'll get to later, and so just keep that in your mind. That's not a hard book to find. Where we're going to start this morning is 1 Corinthians 12, though, okay? So you're going to find 2 Peter, and you're going to just kind of put a ribbon there, uh, for rather 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, but we're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, all right? So you're mindful of that. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is a passage we are not unfamiliar with. Uh, in fact, last year, we spent about five or six weeks uh, unpacking every nuance of that passage. Um, in fact, as we got to the idea, we're talking this morning about community, a gospel community uh, is what a church should be. And I love the word church. I don't mean to take away from that at all. Uh, we are a church. It's a word that God uses to describe the gathering of God's saints. And so that's an absolute biblical word, but we're driving home a certain aspect of church uh, uh, when we use the word community. We've discussed community last week just briefly. Uh, I will sum it up to say this. A community is a gathering of people around certain values and for certain outcomes, okay? We gather around certain things, uh, such as Jesus. We gather around church membership. We gather around the word of God, but we don't just gather around something. We gather for something. We have a purpose, an outward extension of those beliefs. It's not just one thing. Well, it is enough to just believe the gospel. You'll be saved if you just believe the gospel, but the plan is that we believe the gospel and then act on the gospel, right? And that's what a gospel community should be, not just a group of people who get saved and sit on their blessed assurance, thankful they're going to heaven. Uh, let's hold the fort till Jesus comes back. No, not exactly. There are churches who do that, but I think a healthy gospel community is one who not just receives the gospel, but then goes out to accomplish gospel ministry. I hope you're understanding that. So 2 Corinthians, forgive me, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is a powerful passage about both spiritual gifts and a church-wide unity. Uh, like I said, we went into this passage and we learned that there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. Differences of administrations, but the same Lord. Differences of operations, but the same God. God. That's verses four through six. And I hope that rings a bell. If you're just visiting or just hopping into faith uh, here, then you'll have to go back and listen to that whole series uh, on unity last year. Uh, really, community is the last part of what we're studying. And so, but we're going to start in verse number seven of First Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to hit the ground running. I got a lot of things I want to accomplish with you this morning. Um, the message will be structured a little different. We're going to go through three points just briefly, the first two, and then point number three today, and this is we'll get to in a minute. Point number three is going to have a bunch of things under it. So the first two really are introductory, and I'm, I'm leaving them intact because it's in text, and I think we'll be better for it. But really, we're driving after point three. So hold on to that idea. Let's look up at verse number seven. It says, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all, which is what he's saying is we all have different gifts and strengths and abilities. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is manifest or made known in the congregation by the differences of gifts, by the differences of passions, by the differences of administrations. And some of you uh, have a certain uh, personality or strength that the Holy Spirit wants everybody to see 
of him, not of you. He wants, the Holy, he wants the congregation to see the Holy Spirit's mercy. He wants the congregation to see the Holy Spirit's administration and order and organization. And he wants the whole congregation to see it through your gifting. But then he's got a whole bunch of people over here who have a completely different set of gifts. And he wants, the Holy Spirit wants the congregation to see that facet of our creator through those gifts. And so these gifts aren't in competition with each other. These gifts complete and complement each other. And so he says, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. Verse number 12, he says, for as the body, he's talking about the church, as the body is one and hath many members, and all members of that body being many are one body, so also is Christ. And so he's using the illustration, which we've seen, but some of you perhaps have not. He used the illustration of a physical body. And that in a physical body, we have two hands, we got two feet, we have ears that are different from eyes and noses that are different than mouths. And all of those differences are joined together to make one healthy, productive, able body. And then he says, so it is with Jesus. So it is with the gospel community that we all possess different abilities and different strengths and different passage, uh, uh, passions. We all look different. We all come from different places for the unification of the body so that it's useful. Continue reading in verse 13. He says, for by one spirit, we're all baptized into one body. That's not talking about baptismal membership or baptismal conversion. That means when you got saved, you were baptized by the Holy Spirit into the family of God. He says, we're all baptized into one body. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, doesn't matter what ethnicity you come from. Whether we be bond or free, doesn't matter what class you come from. Uh, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member. So the pastor of a church is not the only member of the church. He says the body is not one member, but many. So, and in this passage earlier, he talks about how the eye can't say to the foot, hey, you're not needed. And the foot can't say, well, I'm not useful. I'm not needed. No, God puts it together and jointly compacts and builds a beautiful body for his glory. Keep reading verse 27. I want you actually to jump down to verse number 27. It says, now we are the body of Christ and members in particular. So listen to me real quick. God's expectation for the church is that we would all be members one of another. Now, would you go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 9? This is really where I want to kind of go. There's a phrase in 1 Peter that is so beautiful uh, that I've seen it, I've read it, I probably preached from it, but I've never noticed it with such volume as I did this week. And so from, from 1 Corinthians 12, we learn that we are members one of another that we have a common uh, unifying purpose and that we are the body of Jesus living out the gospel, not just receiving it, but living it out as well. And now I want you to see in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 9, it says this, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and holy nation. Now, Real quick, context matters. Paul's talking, or forgive me, Peter is talking to the Gentiles. He's not talking to the Jewish people. He's saying, hey, we are a peculiar people. We are a priesthood and holy nation that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And I want you to read the next part, verse 10 out loud with me. Ready, begin. Which in time past were not a people. Stop. He's talking about the church. He says, hey, you all weren't even a thing. You guys were on opposite sides of the, the political spectrum. You were on opposite sides of the race gap. You were on opposite sides of the, you know, the, the financial pay gap. You were, you were not a people. He says, which in time past were not a people. Ready, begin. But are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. I love that passage. You know what he's saying? Let's just, let's put it into our context. Faith Baptist Church would not have existed without Jesus. 
The friends that you call family were not a people with you, but now because of Christ, you're not just a people, you are the people of God. Outside of Jesus Christ, we have very little in common with each other. Uh, we, we, uh, we were not a singular people. Uh, I think about the Spanish who will join the congregation today, and I'm very excited about that. Uh, there's three or four families that will be joining in membership here at Faith. And uh, aside from Jesus, I think about these families we got very little in common. We can't even speak the same language together. But you who were not a people are now become the people of God. That's a Jesus-only type thing. We become one people. And the family of Faith Baptist Church, we've already seen, we are members one of another. We are different body parts in the same body with Jesus as our common source of life. And we share community. And that community is a Jesus thing uh, in a world so wildly divided. What a privilege to have community with God's people. That we who were not a people are now become the people of God. We live in a world where politics divides people, race divides people, money divides people. I mean, just opinions divide people. And we as a Christian community have been afforded this amazing thing the world knows very little about. We are afforded a true, deep, lasting, rooted sense of community. Let's just stop. Let's, let's, let's appropriate this to our individual lives. I want you to stop for a second. I want you to look around the room, okay? I want you to pick a random person, not your BFF, maybe not the person right next to you. I just want you to pick it and then look back up at here, okay? They don't need to know you've picked them. Just pick somebody. And I want you to think about this. That person who's in your mind, Brother Lombardi, you're my guy, all right? Brother Lombardi and I were not a people. I did not know who Brother Lombardi was. I had I've never met him, and outside of the gospel, I would never have met him. The man works in a completely different sector than I do, has a completely different background than I do. We have very little in common, and yet we are a people. I think about Mrs. Gray. Mrs. Gray is the daughter of a coal miner of West Virginia. We were not a people, but we have now become the people of God. I, I think about the, the foster boy who grew up in Visalia, Brother Herring. We were not a people. And now he serves on the deacon board and leadership team at Faith Baptist Church. I think about Brother Josh, who's filling the pulpit for Brother Graves this morning. Brother Josh wasn't even born in this country, immigrated as a, as a young man and grew up in Bakersfield. We were not a people. And now he serves on staff here. Jesus had made of all of us one. Members one of another, baptized into the same body of believers. He has made us, there's a word for it, a community. A group of people who gather around certain values and beliefs and exercise for the same, a communal purpose and outcome. And that's what community is. And so what we're going to do, I know we're kind of not all over the map. I don't mean that in a, in a disjointed way, but we were in a couple different passages. What we're going to do for the rest of the service, we're going to go over to Romans 12. We're going to land there. We're going to unpack it in an expository way. We're just going to go verse by verse, line by line, and learn a handful of truths about what it means to be a gospel community. How does that affect us? I know it's a, a fun phrase to say. It's kind of buzzy. But the fact of the matter is, what does it mean to be made one people and the people of God? So we're going to pray, and we're going to dive in. Lord, would you please meet with us this morning? Father, I feel you present. I, I know you're always present, but I feel a certain level of liberty, God, and you know the need of the hour. Father, you know how, how desperately I need to be out of the way. And I pray, God, that you would help me, Lord, in my frailty to be able to be used of you this morning. And, uh, Lord, you've ordained this special time of preaching. 
Uh, you've chose it. You've placed your blessing upon it. And now, Father, I need your spirit to move freely in our hearts and through my speaking. God, what a strange proposition. Uh, I don't feel uh, worthy to do this, but I know that you've qualified me through the scripture. And Lord, I hope that I've been out of the way enough this week where your spirit can use me in a special way. Lord, just bless this time as we study. Help us all to engage. And it was a little warm, and there are certainly uh, burdens on all of our hearts and things we've got to take care of later on. But God, as we've gathered for this moment, I ask that your spirit would just touch it in a special way. Father, we'll give you the glory for anything and everything that happens. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, before we go in a little further, now I want you to go to Romans 12. You get there for me if you would. But before we go in any further to this second study on the word community, there is a hidden trap attached to that word in all of our minds. Now, I, it, it, to one degree or another, it'll be represented differently across the room, but everyone can fall prey to this trap. It's not just a trap for lost people who don't have a biblical framework. Uh, Christians fall prey to this trap when it comes to the idea of community. Here's what I mean. Oftentimes, when we start out with the word community in our mind, we imagine this idealized perfection attached to the word community. Now, I'll explain what I mean. We think, oh, community, yes, sign me up. I mean, it's the white picket fence. It's the leave it to beaver. It's the rose-colored glasses. You know, it's the cheery disposition, hidey-ho neighbor. We've got this almost porcelain idea of community. It's almost this like Hollywood faked, you know, everything looks like a movie set and everyone's kind. That's what we're striving for in community. And that's what church should be. <laughs> but that's a trap. Because every person living and breathing on this planet has not escaped the curse. Every single living, breathing person in the church has not escaped the curse. Yes, we've been saved from our sin. Yes, we've been saved from the penalty of our sin. And we should no longer walk therein. But by way of testimony, how many of us still walk in the flesh a time or two? We all do. And so when we come to this idea of a gospel community, when community stands alone, we tend to idealize it. But then add gospel on top of that. Oh, yeah, it's going to be awesome. I mean, this is going to be Mayberry all over again. Everybody's going to be kind. When I come into church, it's perfect community. That's just not true. That's not true in any sense of the word community. You live in a neighborhood. Is your neighborhood perfect? No. That's not true of your own family. Right, we have these kids and we're building a family and community and those kids are going to nothing but love us. Psych. <laughs> right? Well, I'm going to get married and my husband's never going to let me down. He'll never make me cry. She'll never make me cry. Okay, that's just not true in any sense of community. That's not true in a church sense of community either. Everywhere you go, you will find broken people. You don't escape that. You go to Vaughn's and you find broken people, but you still shop there. And here's a big problem. This is a pet peeve of mine. Well, I don't go to church because there's imperfect people there. You go to Chick-fil-A? You go to Albertsons? You go anywhere? It's so wild to me that only church has to be held to the standard of perfection as it relates to community. But in our HOA, we're like, I get it. Nobody's perfect here. That's just not how community works. We are sinners saved by grace, growing into the image of our Redeemer. We are not perfect. We will not be perfect. But God has made us a people who were no people, but now are the people of God. And that's beautiful. But please understand, it is not perfect. Uh, and so listen, at the same time, don't let that, that imperfection. Recognize the church and the community God is building here is imperfect. But don't let that drive you away. 
Don't let that drive you away from something that God has ordained. We talked a little bit about it last week. We won't dive into it much this week. But the idea of not forsaking the assembling, that's the word church. Don't forsake that. Um, yes, it's imperfect, but God desires for us to come to each other, to gather, to have community. Why? Well, pastor, you just don't want us to skip church. Well, I don't, but that's not why. Here's why I don't want you to skip church. Because the Bible tells us that we are like sheep. We are supposed to be led by the still waters and the green pastures. And I am a full, fully convinced believer that church is those still waters and green pastures. Now, there are other times and you're quiet with God, the same thing happens. But God's design for church is supernatural. That you and I, when we gather together to, to read the word, to hear the word, to, to be led by the spirit, to worship the son and glorify the father, when God's people gather in commune, communion, community, when God's people gather, there is something beautiful that's supposed to happen. It's amazing to me how lives are changed in a setting just like this how families are strengthened in a setting just like this, how souls get saved and parents are reshaped and our whole definition gets restructured as we talked about a few weeks ago. It's an amazing thing when, when God's people gather around something and for something because that's exactly what community is. A group of people who gather around a common unifying purpose for a common unifying pursuit. That is community. So we're going to jump into Romans 12, and we're going to learn a handful of things. Like I said, we'll learn two truths um, just to kind of start us off. And then we're going to get into to the third one. And that's where we're really going to start kind of going through a list that Paul has for us. We mentioned that in Sunday school. Paul seems to like lists. And uh, I'm not a huge fan of lists, but the Apostle Paul, he just, like we saw in Ephesians, man, boom, 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 boom. Same thing is going to happen here in Romans. And this is a letter Paul wrote to the church at, in Rome. So let's pick up in verse 1. Romans 12 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. So listen, all of you, all of us are the audience of this particular book. And Paul is begging with us. He is pleading with us. He is the biblical word, beseeching us to do something. What is he beseeching us to do? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, because you were saved, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now, we won't stop and unpack this until we read a couple more verses. But here's what Paul just called us to. Paul calls us to Christian service. Now, we don't even, we don't know yet, but in verse number four, the whole chapter is going to break open. Chapter, verse number four, he's going to tell us, I'm talking about a gospel community, but he's going to start out by instructing us to do a couple things. And then he's going to say, you're going to do these things because you're a gospel community. But right now we're still in verse one and he's saying, hey, do this. Verse two, do this. Verse three, do this. Verse four, here's why you do these things. And it's because of community. So hold on to that. So he says, hey, I'm calling you to Christian service. You've been saved, present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So not only does he call us to service, he calls us to consecration and holiness. He says, hey, you're supposed to be serving Jesus with your gifts and talents. Hey, you're supposed to be walking in discipleship, in sanctification. Verse number three, for I say through the grace that is given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. So he calls us into humility. So he says, hey, listen, you're supposed to consecrate your life, your body. Give it to God as a sacrifice. It's a reasonable thing to do. And then he says, hey, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. He says, uh, don't be conformed to the lusts and the shape of this world. And then in verse number three, he says, hey, I want you to walk in humility. I don't want you to puff yourself up and think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. But why? He's going to tell us in verse number four. Look at it with me if you would. Verse number four, he says, for... 
as we have many members in one body and all members have not the same office. So we being many are one body in Christ and every, mem- every one members one of another. So why would it matter that we live consecrated lives? Why would it matter that we live holy lives? Why would it matter that we serve? Because we are members one of another. So here's the first of three things I want us to learn this morning. Number one, the spiritual health, which we're going to get to, the spiritual health of the whole that he's going to talk about in verse four through the rest of the chapter is built on, listen to me, the individual obedience of the members. So when he says, hey, do these three things because you're members one of another, what he's saying is the spiritual temperature of the whole congregation is is determined by the spiritual temperature of the individual believers that you and I should live consecrated lives because we are members one of another. You and I should live lives of service because we are members one of another. And let me say this about the church. We as a church are better or worse because of the decisions each one of you made this week. We are a stronger or a weaker congregation, a stronger or a weaker community dependent on how you decided to obey Jesus. If each of us individually decide to serve Jesus, then we corporately can serve Jesus far better. But if amongst the congregation, only a handful of people decide to serve, if only a handful of people decide to live a consecrated life, if only a handful of people give their bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is just a reasonable service, it's the D minus of Christianity to let him have your life. That's just the basics of it. He says, if we don't do that, if we don't do that individually and corporately as a body, how effective can we really be? The expectation of God is that we would present our bodies. The expectation of God is that we would not be conformed to this world, but we'd be transformed. The expectation of God is that we would walk in humility and not be boastful and not be lifted up and not be elevated. Why would he tell us not to do those things or to do those things because of verse four? Look at it again. Or, so because, do those three things because we uh, we have many members in one body And all members have not the same office. So we being many are one body in Christ and every one members one of another. So before we move on, I want to drive home this point. That the spiritual temperature of the whole is determined by the spiritual temperature of the individual. The spiritual strength of our church is determined by the spiritual strength of your home. The spiritual strength of your home is determined by the spiritual strength of the individual's in that home. So now Paul is going to launch off into this gospel community description found in verse number six. So in in verse number five, he talks more about this idea, uh, or forgive me, the first five verses, he talks more about this idea of not living incorrectly. But for the rest of the verses, starting in verse number six on, he's going to talk about why we should live correctly. So in verses one through four, he says, hey, don't do these things. Don't live after the flesh. Don't be conformed to the world. But now in verse number six, here's what we're going to learn. Number two, in a gospel community, it is not enough just to avoid being a spiritual deficit, walking in the world, not serving what we must do is we must participate in adding to the spiritual temperature. So in the previous verses, what he said is, hey, don't drop the spiritual temperature, but now he's gonna say, use your gifts in the church to further the mission, not just derail it. Look at verse six. He says, having then gifts differing. So you've got something you're supposed to use. Not only are you supposed to not walk after the world, now you have something to give. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given us. Whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the portion of faith. Or ministry, let us wait on our ministry. Or he that teacheth on teaching. Or he that exhorteth on exhortation. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence. He that showeth showeth mercy with cheerfulness. 
So again, verses one through four, hey, walk in humility, walk in purity, don't be unspiritual. And then he says, in, 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 and rather than being unspiritual, rather than being haughty, rather than being conformed to the world, he says this, Christian, what have I given you to serve the church? Give that back to the church. Hey, not only don't walk in the flesh, but use your gifts and callings for the church. If your gift is mercy, then give it to the church. If your gift is ruling, then give it to the church. Whatever I've gifted you, God expects that we would add it and invest it back into the community. Listen, it's so important at the same time that we would pour into the church. At the same time, we're not walking in the flesh. We are using what God has given to us. And so this is back to uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, the idea of different gifts. Some in here are the eye or the hand or the foot or the ear. But whatever gift you've been given, let me ask you, are you using it for the kingdom's sake? Let me ask it this way, maybe a little more practical. What gift did you show up with this morning to offer to Jesus? Maybe it was faith. I don't want to pick on people because then some people feel, out, feel left out. But as I was preparing this message, I, I, there's one Christian in particular in this room who always stands as, a, as an example of faith, Miss Freyer. Miss Freyer brings faith every single week that challenges me and encourages me. It's just something she possesses. She's got a greater measure of faith than I've got. And I need that measure of faith in church as a Christian, as a part of the community. I've got a gift to bring. My gift is ruling and preaching, but what's your gift? What's your gift to the church that you brought today that you're supposed to render and yield it back to, to the church? Maybe it's teaching. Maybe it's exhortation. Maybe it's giving. Maybe it's mercy. Listen, community is never supposed to be one-sided. Even the world understands that. If you live in an HOA, They expect you to contribute. They expect you to be a part of it. They expect you to kind of go along with everyone else. The gospel community should not be one-sided. It should not just be one person because we are many members, not just one. The whole congregation is supposed to be pouring in to the community. So what gifts did you bring this morning to offer to Jesus? Now, I'm excited for where the text takes us now. Verses 9 through 21 carry a long list of expectations. And I'm going to say it this way. Their duties and responsibilities. And I use that word on purpose. That's point number three. The duties and responsibilities of being a part of a gospel community. Now, like I said, that terminology is on purpose because sometimes that offends us. Well, there's, there's duties and responsibilities of, of being a part of this community. Well, I'll say this. Aren't there duties and responsibilities of being a part of Little League? Right? I mean, you pay to be there and you're expected to sign up for snacks and there's a minimum number of practices you're going to need to be there. And for what? At the end of the year, they get a plastic trophy that doesn't matter at all. And we're good with that. Like someone calls and says, hey, we noticed that your kid is missing too many practices. They need to be there. And we're like, sign us up. We'll be there. But we get to the idea of church and we're like, whoa, duties and responsibilities? PTA carries duties and responsibility. Costco membership. I mean, they charge you just to walk in the building. So why would it ever bother a child of God that he would have non-negotiable expectations for those that are his? And that's what we're about to find. We are about to embark on a list. So I've got 13 things just in the next couple of verses where God says, hey, um, yeah, these are the expectations. If you're a part of a gospel community, Paul just lists them out. Bam, bam, bam. 13 things says, hey, this is the expectation. You're a part of the family. You're a part of the membership. You're a part of the, the community, as it were. Here's what I expect of you. And again, it's not Paul. It's the spirit of God speaking through the apostle Paul. We're going to start in verse number nine, but let's learn our first of 13. Now, Be good at notes or go back and listen to the live stream because I won't repeat any of the 13. There's just too much to get through in the time that I've got allotted. So number one, expectation number one is that we have a real and sincere love for the church family. 
So he's talking about community. He tells us, hey, don't walk after the flesh. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Do these things and then use your gifts for him in the community. And now he's going to jump into this list of expectations. Look at verse number nine. He says, let love be without dissimulation. That word dissimulation just means unhypocritical or, or, or hypocritical. He says, don't let your love be faked. Don't let your love be pretentious. When it comes to a gospel community, here's what he's saying. Your love for each other shouldn't be contrived. It shouldn't be pretentious. Oh, hey, brother, I hate that person. Oh, do you see what they wore? Sister, you look great today. In a gospel community, the first expectation Paul lists here is that our love toward each other would be without dissimulation. Now, honestly, I don't know why that would be hard. Like, for a second, we're going to do it again. Just look around at the people at Faith Baptist Church. These people are awesome. I love the people at Faith Baptist Church. Now, if your expectation is perfection, you're going to look at Brother Ronnie and be like, nope, didn't meet it. You're going to look at me and be like, yep, definitely didn't meet it. But if your expectation is community, that, hey, we got something in common. Hey, we're gathering around something and for something. And, man, this is awesome. Then I'm telling you, I personally can't help but love the saints. In fact... That's not just a uniquely Casey quality. That's a uniquely saved quality. Because if you are saved, here we know that we, that, that we have Christ in us because we love the brethren. So look around you. The people around you in your gospel community are not perfect, but they are awesome. And the Apostle Paul gives us this first of 13. He says, hey, when it comes to the community of the church, let your love be without dissimulation. Keep reading. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. He's speaking about us together as a body. And the expectation, number two, is that we would reject evil living and hold to that which is good. That's not only our responsibility toward God, it's also our responsibility toward each other. The Bible tells us that love rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. In fact, 1 Corinthians, Paul's uh, rebuking the church in Corinth for their lack of addressing the sin in their congregation. And he says this to them in 1 Corinthians 5, 2. Ye are puffed up, you're proud of yourselves, and have not rather mourned. Uh, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. Paul says to that church, hey, you should, your heart should break when someone does wickedness. Your heart should rejoice when someone does right. And that's part of the expectations of a gospel community, that we will be a congregation that rejoices in righteousness. We cheer for the teenagers that do right. We weep for the teenagers that go astray, that we go after the teenagers that go astray, that we welcome back the prodigals who want to return. Not that we rejoice in iniquity and, oh, it's fine. No, we rejoice in truth. We are, we are grateful when righteousness, a standard of righteousness is upheld. That's the expectation. I want you to look at number 10. We'll find our third responsibility. Verse number 10, he says, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love in honor, preferring one another. So he's talking about us. It's quite obvious. He's just going through the list. You see how he's just kind of walking down different expectations, not necessarily attached to each other. And here he says, the third expectation is that we would show not just love, but a preferential love in action. And there's a difference, I think, in I can have love in my heart, but affection is an outward display of it. Right, you think about like uh, uh, one of my daughters. Oh, let's go with, with Abby. Abby loves to show affection. She doesn't show affection across the room. She climbs on me. She'll stand on my face and she'll hug me and she'll kiss. That's affection. I'm not suggesting we stand on each other and do that. I'm simply suggesting that love in action would be a good def definition of affection, but not just any affection. Notice what he said. Be kindly affectioned one toward another with brotherly love in honor preferring one another. A kind of love that says, hey, you go first. Hey, 
That's fine. I don't need to have my way. You can have your way. Hey, you know what? The closest parking spot, I'll save that for somebody else. Hey, you know what? This, uh, the last, uh, uh, you know, pastry at the coffee corner, I'll just let somebody else have that. This kind of affection isn't just a normal kind of love. It's a kind of love that puts other people ahead of them. I think about this kind of love Jesus described when James and John wanted to know who'd be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Hey, so who gets to be at the top? And Jesus said, that's the kind of stuff that Gentiles seek after. He says, but my people, the greatest of us are the ones who serve each other. That lets somebody else go ahead of them, somebody else go before them. So how in the world are we going to have a gospel community that's thriving and growing? Well, by having love and affection toward each other in a way that lets somebody else go first, in a way that puts the needs of other people ahead of our own perceived needs and desires, a one that blesses other people and lets others have preference. So we need to keep moving. Like I said, I can't rehearse any of these. We're going to go to verse number 11, and we're going to find that we have, we have a responsibility as a gospel community. We should be fervent in our care and service one for another. This might be my favorite point of the day. Now, there's a lot left, so don't, don't, don't check out on me, but this one's very important. Look at verse number 11. He says, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Now, when you read that, you might be thinking he's talking about work. I mean, it sounds like it, right? Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit. What business? Serving the Lord. There is an intentional corporate works uh, kind of uh, idea attached to this verse. This, uh, the first part of this verse, you'd almost, you'd almost expect to hear it in some kind of business meeting or seminar. Hey, when you're doing work for, you know, uh, unnamed corporation, make sure that you're not slothful, make sure you're not lazy, be diligent. But he's actually talking about our service for the Lord and to one another. That's what he's referencing. So what he's saying is, when it comes to our service to Jesus and our service toward each other, We shouldn't be stumbling in half prepared. Try that in a business meeting. You wouldn't. Which is why God started the verse the way he did. Hey, fervent in business, not thoughtful. When you serve the Lord. Treat your service to each other like you would your service to a client or your responsibility toward a boss. Can you imagine stumbling into a business meeting where you're presenting totally unprepared? And yet oftentimes we can do that in our Sunday school classes. We treat the client across from us because they're going to, we're going to make money off of them. We treat them with kid gloves and carefulness. And Hey, can I get you some water? And Hey, I'll be here on time. I'll actually be here early. I'll make sure the air conditioner's turned on. I'll, I'll make sure that I'm fervent in making sure this deal goes through. And God says, with that same fervency of business, serve me. Don't stumble into nursery like you forgot it. Don't not stumble into nursery because you forgot it. Don't stumble into Sunday school unprepared. Fervent serving the Lord. It's not slothful in your business, not slothful in your responsibilities, not stumbling into loving the congregation into this gospel community, squealing in the last minute and taking off the first minute. No, 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 no. Be diligent, just like you would in business in relationship to serving the people of God. Let's keep moving through our text, the list that Paul gives us, verse 12. He says, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. So what do we learn in number five? To be patient and prayerful with each other. Because when people are around each other, friction happens, turbulence happens, tribulation happens. And Paul admonishes us here to rejoice in hope and be patient in that. So when someone isn't what you think they should be in your community, hey, be patient and hope. Uh, Have a good spirit about it anyway. Go ahead and extend some prayer-filled patience toward that person. Again, flush the idealized, perfect understanding of community that no one does anything wrong. No, instead, Paul says, hey, square up to the reality. You're going to need to be patient and prayerful with people. 
Just expect that. And so when someone says something cross or when someone is less than kind or when someone doesn't render to you something you think they should, you should be careful and patient and, and, and hopeful and prayerful toward them. In fact, four more times, Paul's gonna address that same idea. It's a big theme for him. Look at verse number 13. Let's keep going. He says this. You might not like this, but it's okay. It's in the Bible. Number 13, verse number 13, point number six. Distributing to the necessity of the saints given to hospitality. So number six, as it relates to a gospel community, the expectation is that you would partake in giving to the congregation and the mission of the church. What's the mission of the church? The mission of the church is making saints and training saints for the work of reaching other saints. And that requires, listen, the faithful participation and faithful practice of God's people giving. Now, again, I come to this observation that in other communities, we don't have a problem with that. But in gospel community, for some reason, we bristle at the idea. Now, I, I don't think anybody in this room is in the Elks Lodge, um, but let me read for you their expectation. Straight, there's like seven requirements, and this is like number three. I'll just read it for you. For the Elks Lodge, the charitable and benevolent activity of one's own lodge frequently requires the personal attention of members other than its officers. Each member should readily respond to any official call upon him for any fraternal service that may be within his reasonable capacity to render. Sure, sign me up. I'll be a part of that membership. Churches like God's like, hey, uh, yeah, the expectation is that you would be faithful in your tithes and offerings. We're like, whoa. I've never seen anybody argue with the person at Costco when their membership fee is due. What do you mean I got to pay to be here? Listen, you don't have to pay to be in church, but the expectation of a gospel community is that you would give to the needs of the saints, that you would be a part of the process. Again, I'll read it for you. Distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality. We'll pay a couple hundred bucks for a plastic trophy at the end of the season. That doesn't matter. We'll pay our HOA. We'll pay to be a member of the gym. We never argue with a person at the gym about our membership. Dues, if you will. And Paul asserts under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, again, that we would distribute to the necessity of the saints given to hospitality. You never argue with the cable company when the bill comes due. How dare they? But a gospel community takes care of its own. When there is a need, they take care of that need. 1 John 3.17 says this, but whoso hath this world's good, seeth his brother, part of the community, in need, shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him. He asks a question. How dwelleth the love of God in him? It's an important question. Let's keep rolling. Look at verse number 14. We're almost there. We'll move faster through the last ones. Verse number 14 of Romans 12 says, Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Now, why would Paul have to put that in the expectations of a gospel community? Because you have a natural man and so do I. When someone curses me, my first inclination is to curse them. When someone is unkind to me, my very natural response is to be unnice to them. But the Bible tells us that we would be kind, that we would bless them that persecute us. Bless and curse not. And let me just say, that is a strictly Christian perspective. This world, apart from Christianity, that's not a Western value. That is a Bible value that did not exist before the person of Jesus. Listen, even in the Old Testament, they were eye for eye. They were tooth for tooth. It, the whole turn the other cheek thing didn't happen until Jesus came. So the idea that, well, you know, the Jewish people, they would, no, no, no. No, that is a strictly Jesus perspective that we would render good to those who've done us evil. Humanism and evolutionary theory suggest the exact opposite. That you survive over the rights of other people. That if you can take, you can have, you protect your own self. The turning of the other cheek is just a Jesus thing. 
It's wild to me that in this community, we can have such community. Why? Well, because the expectation is that when someone smites me, I give them the other cheek. That when someone persecutes me, even in the family of God, that I can bless them and curse not. That I can, I can be kind to them and curse not. Listen, not everyone outside of this community will treat you right. But the expectation is God, of God is that you love them. Not everybody, and I hate to say this even more, but not everybody in the congregation will treat you right. But the expectation is that you would bless them and love them anyway. Now, I wish I could review the previous seven, but again, for sake of time, I've just got to move to number eight. You can go back and listen. Verse number 15 is going to give us our eighth point. Look at verse 15. He says, rejoice with them. Notice I just going from list to list, topic to topic. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. So number eight, as members of the gospel community, we are expected, this is part of the membership dues and obligations, to rejoice in the high moments and to weep with them in the low moments. To be with the congregation when something devastating happens and to rejoice with them when something wonderful happens. Now, this is unfortunately human nature as well. It is easier to weep with them that weep than to rejoice with them that rejoice. What do you mean? Well, let's say someone undergoes hardship. They lose a job. Maybe somebody passes away. As a child of God, it, it, it's, it's more natural, though not natural, more natural to say, hey, I'm going to be there. I'm going to love on them. I'm going to meal train. I'm going to do what I can. But then when someone in the congregation shows up with a new car, we're like, so what's that about? How come you got that? Someone gets to teach the class we didn't get to teach. Well, how come they did and I didn't? We, we are far better at mourning with those, weeping with those that weep. The problem I find is rejoicing with those that rejoice. When God prospers someone, God blesses someone, oftentimes that's when jealousy and judgment starts coming out. Well, that must be nice. Uh, how come, you know, I, I wonder what it'd be like to be able to have that. How come we didn't get to? And that is not supposed to be the prevailing spirit of God's people. We are to weep with them that weep and to rejoice with them that rejoice. I want you to think before we move on about your own family. I think about my kids, all four of them, right? I want all four of my kids to prosper. Man, I want my kids to get a good job. I want my kids to be well taken care of. I honestly, personally, don't want any of my kids to be rich. I want to feed them food convenient for me, as the, uh, the Bible tells us. I, I want my kids to be well taken care of, provide for their own, leave an inheritance to their children's children. I want them to have a car that's dependable. I want them to be in the blessings of God. I, re- I will rejoice when they grow older and those things can happen. Why would I take any other perspective toward that person, that person, or you? If we're family... If we're a gospel community, I should be able to rejoice when God blesses you. I should be able to be excited when something good happens to you. That should be something we rejoice in uh, when God prospers a staff member. Oh, we're just paying them too much. That's not what Paul's talking about here, but that we would rejoice with those that rejoice. I want you to see number nine, just moving on. Number nine, we're going to see that God expects that we treat each other without partiality. This is careful and important. Look at verse 16. He says, be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, don't be heady and high-minded, but condescend to men of low estate. So there's the high and the lofty, and then there's the low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Here's what he's saying. Church is not a place to lift others up and put others down. Well, someone comes in with a ring and gay apparel. Well, here's your seat in the front, sir. And a poor person, well, you're going to sit there in the back under the footstool. No, we are to have an equal view of each other across the board. We're yes to love the, the, the weak and the hurting among us and to, to love and honor those in, in leadership capacities. But across the board, we're supposed to have uh, this same mind one toward another that we don't love with partiality, that we don't esteem others better than, well, I like that person more than that person and this person's better than that person. That's not how gospel community works. 
Let's get to expectation number 10, 11, 12, and 13 a little more faster. Verse number 17 says, recompense to no man evil for evil, provide things honest in the sight of all men. This is the second time the apostle Paul is turning it upside down. He's saying, hey, when someone does evil, don't do evil back to them. Instead, look at, look at the verse and I'll explain to you what it's saying. Instead, he says, provide things honest in the sight of all men. Worry about your testimony and the testimony of Jesus and your response. So when someone is unkind to you, it's not about getting even. It's about making sure that the love of Jesus is on full display. You're going to display things honest in the sight of all men. Look at verse 18, and we'll just hasten through these last three. He says, if it be possible, notice this list again. Here are the, the, the do's and responsibilities of a gospel community. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. I'm glad he put that in there because sometimes that's hard. And I don't mean that to be funny or to pick on anybody, but in a gospel community, sometimes it feels like it takes everything inside of you to dwell peaceably with every man. We've got differences of opinions. That's okay. We've got differences of personalities. That's okay. You have different expectations. I'll have a different set of expectations at times, but here's what God said. No matter what happens, do everything inside of you to live peaceably with those people. That's the only way gospel community remains unbroken and unshattered. Continuing into verse number 19, he says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. So he says, make, make room for someone to be unkind to you. Give place to wrath. He says, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. So the idea is that we build into our community the expectation that someone will wrong you. That's what I mean by this church is not good if your expectation is perfection. The people in this congregation are amazing. If you build in, if you make place for wrath, if you build into your expectation that someone's gonna do something and I'm gonna have to forgive them and they're gonna have to forgive me and we're gonna have to build in a little bit of grace, which is actually gonna be our last point. But he says, when it comes to a gospel community, build into this expectation that someone's gonna do something that they shouldn't. Look at verse 20 and 21 and this will be our last one and we'll pray. Verse 20 says, therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, Give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire upon, on his head. And that's talking about conviction. He'll realize, man, I've been wrong to this person. Be not overcome evil uh, of evil, but overcome evil with good. So here's this last expectation out of 13. And I know it's a lot to digest. Here's what he said. Bury the offenses of others in the grace of Jesus Christ. Don't let the evil overcome you but the good that Jesus has created in you, overcome that evil with that good. Overcome and bury in grace the offenses of other people. So how in the world are we gonna be a gospel community gathered around a shared set of ideals and beliefs, gathered for a, a, a unifying purpose? How are we gonna do that year after year after year until Jesus comes back? And he might come back tomorrow or he might come back in 20,000 years. We have no idea. We're just waiting. But how are we gonna make it to that day? Well, we're gonna have to bury some things in grace. We're gonna to have to render e no evil for evil. We're gonna to have to do some of these things that we're gonna to have to participate in, in giving and being a part of gospel community. So my challenge to you, and I know there was many things listed, my hope is that God pointed out one or two areas in your life that God says, hey, you're not matching up with the expectation here. These are things that we're gonna to have to adjust in our own living and in our relationships toward each other. Let's go ahead and pray.